Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, and welcome to a history of Europe key battles. This is the Thirty Years' War, part four out of seven. Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden and the Swedish wars leading up to the Thirty Years' War. Of all the countless personalities involved in the story of the Thirty Years' War, two stand out from the rest. The Imperial Commander Wallenstein, who was introduced last week, and King Gustavus Adolphus are considered two of the greatest military strategists of the age, if not all time. Their military contest across Central Europe, culminating in the Battle of Lützen, 1632, is one of the most well-known episodes of the war. In the previous three weeks, I have described the first dozen years of the Thirty Years' War. Protestant-led revolts in Bohemia and Austria were comprehensively crushed by the newly elected Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II, who then worked with his Habsburg cousin, King Philip IV of Spain, to further impose imperial authority and the Catholic faith throughout his empire. Both had ambitions to extend their control into the Baltic coast, and until 1630, the plan was going well. The King of Denmark, Christian IV, attempted to push back the imperial forces, but his armies were heavily defeated and he was forced out of the war. In his place arrived his traditional rival in the Baltic, Sweden, who in the power of their king, Gustavus Adolphus, was determined to expand the Swedish power in the Baltic and at the same time strike a blow for his fellow Protestants. It's worth at this point catching up on events in the Baltic region. The Swedes had fought Russia and Poland for many years for control of the southern Baltic coastline. In the year 1582, they achieved military success and gained from Ivan the Terrible the territories of Estonia and Ingria, an area located along the southern shore of the Gulf of Finland. One key dynamic was the strong dynastic links between Sweden and Poland. The king of Poland-Lithuania from 1587, Sigismund III, was the son of King John III of Sweden, and in the 1590s was also 
for a period King of Sweden. However, he was deposed from the Swedish throne in 1599 by his uncle, Charles IX, and spent much of the rest of his life attempting to reclaim it. Charles's justification for taking the Swedish crown was that Sigismund, as a devout Catholic, was unsuitable to rule Protestant-dominated Sweden. From 1600, Charles IX fought against Sigismund over the Baltic in a war which, interrupted by truces, was to last until 1629. In the year 1600, the Swedes launched a sudden attack from Estonia into the Polish province of Livonia, which included the key trading port of Riga. The most significant early battle was the Battle of Kyrkholm in 1605, when the Polish cavalry decimated the Swedish army when relieving a siege at Riga. The Polish-Swedish conflict was suspended after 1605 due to the implosion of the Russian government. This began with the death of Tsar Boris Gudanov, which triggered a period of civil war in Russia, known as the Time of Troubles. Both Poland and Sweden took advantage of the turmoil to grab Russian territory, Sweden taking the region around Kixholm and Lake Ladoga, an area where later St Petersburg would be built. War broke out between Denmark and Sweden in what is known as the Kalamar War, 1611-1613. to At the beginning of the 17th century, the Kingdom of Denmark was the leading power in the Baltic, with its territories covering an immense area from northern Germany, Norway and parts of southern Sweden. Their control of the islands of Gotland and Erzen posed a threat to Sweden, as they facilitated control of the Baltic waters. Sweden, on the other hand, felt surrounded. The area to their west was controlled by Norway, the south by Denmark, and to the east and southeast were Russia and Poland. Sweden had no outlet to the west except for a thin sliver of land around the fortress of Elvsborg, in present-day Gothenburg. The entrance to the Baltic was completely in Danish hands, where payment was demanded from foreign ships to allow them to pass, the so-called Sounds Jews. Sweden sought an alternative trade route through sparsely populated Lapland to avoid the payments. Since the Sound Jews were Denmark's main source of income, Denmark was prepared to fight to prevent alternative trade routes from being established. King Charles IX of Sweden ignored the process of King Christian IV of Denmark. Finally, in April 1611, Denmark declared war upon Sweden and invaded. The Danes made early gains. Then, on October 20th, 1611, King Charles IX of Sweden died and was succeeded by his son Gustav, who we will be hearing much more from. In most historical writing, he is referred to by his Latinized name, Gustavus Adolphus, so I shall do the same. On ascending the throne, Gustavus Adolphus sued for peace, but Christian IV saw an opportunity for larger victories and strengthened his armies in southern Sweden. In early 1612, Denmark attacked and eventually conquered Elvsborg. This was a major setback for Sweden, as the country now lacked access to the sea in the west. Having achieved this success, 
and aiming to end the war as soon as possible, the Danish command ordered an attack deep into Sweden, towards the capital of Stockholm. However, scorched earth methods and guerrilla warfare from the Swedish sides made this a very difficult task, and many of the mercenaries and the Danish army deserted since they did not receive their pay. Stockholm was never seriously threatened, and Gustavus Adolphus was able to avoid a complete Danish victory. In an agreed peace, in 1613, Denmark regained control of trade across Lapland. Furthermore, Sweden had to pay a high ransom for the return of Ellsborg. Sweden, however, did achieve one major concession, the exemptions of sounds dues for its ships. Gustavus Adolphus had inherited three wars from his father against Denmark, Poland and Russia. After concluding peace with the Danes, he was able to turn his attention back to Russia, which was still in political turmoil. He launched invasions in 1613 and 1614, and the following year laid siege to Peskov. The Russians, however, held their own until February 1617, when the Treaty of Stolbova was agreed. Russia was deprived of its access to the Baltic Sea and awarded to Sweden the province of Ingria. Novgorod was restored to Russia. For Sweden, the acquisition of Karelia and Ingria gave them a secure land connection between their possessions in Finland and Estonia, and most of Russian trade with the West came under Swedish control. And so Gustavus Adolphus, in the first half-dozen years of his reign, was able to conclude two of the three wars which he had inherited reasonably successfully. This background of constant warfare helps explain Gustavus's strong interest in the military. When Gustavus was born on 9th of December 1594, the legal king of Sweden was Sigismund, his father Charles's uncle. As the son of a royal duke, Gustavus had an opulent upbringing and excellent education, but there was no expectation that he would be a future king as the Swedish crown was in a different branch of the family. The young Gustavus read everything he could lay his hands on, dealing with military art and science. He was a strong athlete, and became adept at horse riding and the use of various weapons. He also displayed an early contempt for physical danger, a trait repeated in his later life. Sigismund was deposed in 1599 and Charles elected king by the Swedish parliament. Gustavus was able to participate in affairs of state from an early age, attending meetings with the Council of State and meeting foreign diplomats. He grew up to be tall and broad-shouldered, with light brown hair and a beard. His presence and charisma impressed everyone who met him. He spoke half a dozen languages and was cultured and erudite. Gustavus appointed as his chief minister Axel Oxenstierner, who proved to be an extremely astute diplomat and administrator. Sweden was an, a relatively poor country, but it did have good natural resources and was able to fund reforms thanks to the development of the mining and metallurgy industries. Gustavus undertook reforms of the military in anticipation of a struggle with Sigismund's Poland, which have been much discussed by military historians to this day.
Together with the Dutch leader, Maurice of Nassau, he is credited by scholars of achieving nothing less than a military revolution and setting the direction of military practice for the next two centuries. Gustavus's innovative tactical integration of infantry, cavalry, logistics and particularly his use of artillery has earned him the title of the father of modern warfare. His advances in military science are credited with making Sweden the dominant Baltic power for the next 100 years. He is famous for employing mobile artillery on the battlefield, as well as very aggressive tactics, where attack was stressed over defence and mobility and cavalry initiatives were emphasised. In addition to the usual complements of heavy cannon, he introduced light mobile guns for the first time into Renaissance battlefield. These were grouped in batteries, supporting as more linear deployed formations, replacing the cumbersome and less manoeuvrable traditional deep squares such as the Spanish tercios. In consequence, his forces could redeploy and reconfigure very rapidly, confounding his enemies. Gustavus is also credited with creating the modern Swedish navy and for a new model of conscription. The historian Alan Palmer writes, quote, Oxenstierna devised a system of conscription through which one male intent over the age of 15 was called up for 20 years service in the field army with a guarantee of receiving free landed property as a kind of pension if he survived. The serving soldier could expect to receive good and regular pay and his status in society was raised, end quote. Gustavus's methods worked well as evidenced by a string of successes on the southern Baltic coastline. The Polish king, Sigismund III, was plotting against Gustavus Adolphus, trying to win over Swedish nobility to regain the crown of Sweden. Sigismund even considered another campaign in Sweden, but was unable to do so due to his ongoing war with Russia. In June 1617, four months after the Treaty of Stobova, Gustavus led a naval attack on Polish possessions in Livonia. The Swedes seized almost the whole Livonian coast, except for the key port city of Riga. The treaty was agreed to last for two years, and by the time that was over, Sigismund was preoccupied with the Turks. Early in the autumn of 1621, Gustavus took advantage of a Turkish invasion of Poland, which I described in a recent set of episodes on the Battle of Khotin, 1621. He led a naval contingent of some 148 vessels and more than 17,000 men to try and seize Riga. The city was well supplied with arms and ammunition, and much work had been done to improve the fortifications in anticipation of such an attack. Nevertheless, the garrison was too small to resist for long, and the city surrendered after less than a month. The defenders were granted honourable terms, and no reprisals were taken by the Swedish troops. Riga, with a population of some 30,000, more than twice the size of Stockholm, had grown prosperous on trade. A governor-general was appointed and ensured that the conquered lands were integrated with the Swedish homelands. Today, the Swedish gate and the city walls still remind visitors of this period's influence on the city. 
the Polish Diet were unhappy about Sigismund's claims to the Swedish crown and refused to provide money for renewing the war with Sweden. That didn't stop Sigismund from trying to negotiate naval assistance against the Swedes from the port of Danzig, modern-day Gdansk, and from Spain. Gustavus's next goal was extending his control of the Baltic coastline into East Prussia. This would cut off Polish commerce and hopefully bring pressure on Sigismund to finally renounce his claims on the Swedish crown. The Duchy of Prussia was a feudal fiefdom of Poland, whose duke was Gustavus's brother-in-law, George William, Elector of Brandenburg. Gustavus arrived with 150 ships and quickly captured several towns, almost without a fight. The big prize was Danzig, which, like Riga in Livonia, was the local predominant city port in East Prussia, and maintained its own small army and fleet for defence. However, its citizens depended on their trade with Poland, and so declined to submit to Gustavus. The latest Swedish acts of aggression caused a shift in Polish attitudes. Beforehand, many Poles had seen the war of Sweden as a domestic dispute between two cousins, and had been reluctant to lend Sigismund their full support. The siege of Danzig made them realise their interests were now at stake, indeed even potentially the status of Poland as a great power. And so the Polish Diet voted to give the king their full support and levy taxes accordingly. They recruited Stanislav Konipolski, a hetman that is Polish-Lithuanian military commander, who had fought for many years with distinction against the Tatars and Ottomans. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The next major battle occurred at Dershau, today known as Tichev, a city on the river Vistula, which took place in August 1627. Konopowski prudently refused to be drawn into charging the carefully prepared Swedish infantry positions. Instead, he himself tried to draw the Swedes out from behind their fieldworks. Robert Frost describes the battle in his book Northern Wars, 1558-1732. Quote, After two hours of fruitless waiting, the Poles began to withdraw along a narrow causeway through the marshy ground which lay between them and their camp. At this point, Gustavus Adolphus launched his horse in the surprise attack, which caught the Poles unawares. In the resulting confusion, the two Polish columns were pushed into the marsh, 
before a powerful salvo from the Polish foot and a flank attack by the cavalry stopped the Swedes in their tracks. The Poles lost 80 to 100 men, killed or drowned in the bog. It was dramatic, but it was no Kyrkom. End quote. Both sides claimed victory, but in truth the Battle of Dürschau and subsequent fighting showed that the Swedes and Poles were evenly matched. The Swedes had better artillery, but the Polish had superior cavalry, and both sides were led by intelligent commanders. Gustavus had made impressive early gains, but when the Poles organised more substantial opposition, they were able to hold back the invaders. After two more years of stalemate, the truce of Altmark was agreed in September 1629. The Swedes undoubtedly got the best deal as it left them in the de facto control of Livonia, north of the Davina River. The town of Elbing was left in Swedish hands, and in addition to the duties collected from the areas under its control, Sweden was able to receive a significant share of tolls levied in the lucrative Danzig trade. Robert Frost writes that Sweden got lucky in the negotiations. The Habsburg breakthrough to the Baltic and defeat of Christian IV of Denmark, described last week, had dramatically altered the balance of power in Northern Europe and meant that powers worried at possible Habsburg control of the North German coastline, especially the French, Dutch and the English, were desperate to find someone to reverse the series of Habsburg victories. Thus the mediators at Altmark were hardly neutral, and the generous terms won by Sweden were the result of enormous pressure on the Poles. They were accepted by the Polish nobility, who blamed Sigismund for provoking the Swedish attack by refusing to compromise over the Swedish crown. Sigismund had little choice but to accept the terms and allow Gustavus's army to move on to their next battleground. Historians still argue today over the motives that led Gustavus to enter the Thirty Years' War. The traditional view, and that promoted by the Swedes, at the time as it was a just and glorious intervention to save Lutheranism, a romantic view which persists even today. Religion and politics of the time had become so intermingled that it was difficult to separate the two. Gustavus's own words show that religion was an element of the decision-making, but the main justification was strategic. At the Riksdag, the Swedish council, he declared the following, quote, Sweden is in danger from the power of the Habsburg. That is all, but it is enough. That power must be met swiftly and strongly. The times are bad. The danger is great. It is no moment to ask whether the cost will not be far beyond what we can bear. The fight will be for house and home, for fatherland, for faith. End quote. The primary goal of Gustavus was essentially a continuation of the last several years of campaigning, to drive control over the shores of the Baltic with the eventual ambition of making it a virtual Swedish lake. The presence of the empire was intolerable within such a plan. Wallenstein, the head of the imperial army, had besieged the seaport of Stralsund in 1628 in the process of driving the Danes out of North Germany. One of the reasons for Gustavus staying in the Vistula Basin most of the early summer 
That year may well have been, according to historian Henrik Lund, his desire to stay near his fleet in order to be able to quickly move to the assistance of Stralsund to keep it from being captured by Wallenstein. As mentioned last week, one of the reasons Wallenstein lifted the siege was concern that the Swedes would enter the war. One particular incident of this time is worth mentioning. As part of the intense shipbuilding programme taking place, the Swedes constructed their most powerful and ornate warship ever, which they named the Vasa, named after the ruling dynasty. It was 45 metres long, 11 metres wide, and had space for 300 troops plus 150 seamen and gunners. A carved springing lion, four metres long, was her figurehead, as well as several hundred figures all round carved in pinewood or oak around the decks, including Roman emperors, biblical characters, Greek gods and goddesses, and Swedish royal heroes. The vessel set sail from Stockholm on the 10th of August 1628, with a light wind blowing. Barely a few hundred metres into its voyage, it started to slip away to the starboard, and horrified onlookers from the port saw it sink into the waters. Some fifty seamen perished, and another hundred were saved. The ship's sculpted figures were not seen again until 1961, when it was raised, restored and housed in a museum less than two kilometres from where it had sunk, and is well worth seeing for visitors to Stockholm today. The gamble taken by Gustavus to enter the war in 1630 was immense. To take on the might of the Holy Roman Empire, the Catholic League and Spain, they had to consider that Catholic Poland may wish to intervene despite the peace of Altmark if they saw an opportunity to take back territories recently lost. This gamble shows an immense degree of self-confidence on the part of Gustavus in the new army he had shaped. The Swedish king made the historic crossing across the Baltic in late June 1630 in a fleet of 76 ships equally divided between warships and transports. Delayed by storm, he did not land until the 4th of July 1630 when he reached the Oder estuary. While the size of his army, nearly 14,000 men, was very small compared to the Imperial Army, it was an elite force experienced from the campaigns of the previous few years. They arrived with no close allies. Of their natural allies, the Netherlands was at war with Spain, and England was embroiled in internal problems. And France provided no assistance except for subsidies. Yet Gustavus did have one main stroke of luck. He arrived at just the moment when the imperial allies had fallen out with each other. Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II had pushed too far in the eyes of many when he declared the Edict of Restitution in March 1629, which threatened to take away the rights and liberties of many landholders. The Protestants were mostly worried, but Catholics were also concerned about overreach of the Emperor's powers. In addition, Ferdinand II had just fired his main commander, the talented commander Albrecht von Wallenstein. Nobody at that time could have seriously predicted the success Gustavus and his troops would soon find on the battlefield, 
and how they would completely reshape the balance of power in the Thirty Years' War. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe Key Battles. If you enjoy the show, why not give it a great review on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. And also visit the Facebook page to search for History of Europe Key Battles. The piece of music which I've chose to close out today is by Claudio Monteverdi. It is the first movement of the seventh book of the Madrigals and was published in 1619 and dedicated to Caterina de Medici, Duchess of Mantua. Comes courtesy of the open source website for music, museopen.org. I hope you enjoy. I'll be back in two weeks. Speak to you then. Bye-bye. Per monti, per valli, per distimo, gloricia, corona, 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 palidendite, pastori. Per monti, per valli, bellissimo, gloricia, corona, 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 palidendite, pastori. Giallieta, 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 pastosa, a tutti ingombrato la schiena amorosa, il seno del prato. Giallieta, 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 pastosa, a tutti ingombrato la schiena amorosa, il seno del prato.
deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.